Topic for today, for the last Tuesday of the month PME, uh, hosted by the second division and facilitated by the Cove, is same space, different mandate. And we're lucky today to get our guest lecturer, uh, Nicole Rosenblum, who is the executive director of the Australian Civil Military Centre. She's quite an impressive lady, and as you have a look on her biography, you will soon agree with me. This is part of the Cove talk series for the last Tuesday of the month. You'll recall the last two were critical thinking and also about the operational level of war. I'd encourage everybody to go back and look at those. And of course, thanks to the Cove for hosting these on their website and live streaming it so we can access a much broader audience. Just before we start, a quick note as usual, the views disclaimer is the opinions presented today, they're the ones that they're presenters their own. They don't represent official policy, Australian Army, the Department of Defence or the Australian Government. And the classification for this level is, of course, at the open and source um, unofficial level. Uh, as usual, the questions will be taken at the end. If you do have any questions, please do send them through the Cove phone number, which will come up on your screens. Um, and now we'll hand over to um, Nicola. Again, have a look at her extensive CV. She's had a great career, um, not only in the public service, but also overseas as a diplomat in places like Vienna, Islamabad and um, Bandaseri Bhagwan. She has extensive interagency experience, so she is absolutely qualified to come and speak to us here today. Uh, and I look forward to her sharing some of the experience. And just as a bit of an intro, the challenges in the complex contingencies such as war, security breakdown or um, unrestrained violence, they're often complicated by the contentious relationships between security actors, government actors, non-government actors and humanitarian assistance programs going on in the area of operations. And our Australian military context is further complicated because when we execute operations globally and indeed domestically, um, it can be multinational and it's certainly almost always interagency. So whilst I'd offer that Nicola is not necessarily going to give us the map to how we do this, I do certainly hope that she'll point us in the right direction about where we can find our strategic compass. With that, thank you. The floor Thanks is yours. Much, Jeremy. No pressure. Thank you very much for having me, Major General Tomei. It's a real pleasure to be here today. Um, look, before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge the, the Didjigal and Gadigal people of the Aora Nation on which we meet today, the uh, traditional custodians of the land, and uh, pay my respects to their elders past and present. Um, I'm going to talk to you today both about the Australian Civil Military Centre, which some of you may have come across, but perhaps um, many of you haven't. Um, and I'll also talk about a bit about the theory behind civil military uh, coordination, particularly in crisis response. And Jeremy talked a little bit there about the different types of crisis response, but I'll go into it in a bit more detail. Um, as he said, I'm new to defence, um, a diplomat by trade, um, but with lots of experience working alongside defence, although a very interesting learning journey now that I'm in defence, understanding the language. So the Australian Civil Military Centre, um, or what is known as ACMC, was set up by the Rudd government back in 2008. We're based in Queanbeyan, which is just outside Canberra, and the reason for that is because our sponsor back at the time was the then member for Eden Monero, the retired Colonel Mike Kelly, who was uh, Parliamentary Secretary for Defence. He was an absolute advocate of the centre, um, and he was the one who really championed getting it over the line. Um, and as it says here on the slides, our mission is to support the development of national civil military police capabilities to prevent, prepare for and respond more effectively to conflicts and disasters. Now, originally when we were set up back in 2008, that was very much focused on an international perspective. You know, this was a time when Australia was very much steeped in HADR responses overseas. Um, in more recent years, we have shifted to increasingly uh, also think about domestic responses. 
So since the role of the ADF um, has increased in domestic responses, so too has ACMC's thinking in this space. Um, as an organisation, we sit within defence, so we're within the Joint Capabilities Group, um, but we are actually guided by a, a whole of government or an interagency strategic advisory panel which sets our direction and priorities. So we are really responsive to a range of different agencies. And our workforce is a blended workforce of, of ADF, AP, um, Defence APS, but also representatives from the New Zealand government, from other Australian government agencies and even NGOs. So we really bring together a quite a broad mix of people. So ACMC exists because there is a need for civil military cooperation um, and for those agencies, for Australian civil military and police agencies to work better together. So we respond to the whole of government agenda and we're really in response to Australia's national efforts, but also because there's an expectation in the Australian community that the Australian government will be maximising the efficiency of those agencies and really making sure that the response is coordinated. We seek to facilitate engagement by other agencies, but we don't ever seek to speak on behalf of agencies or replace them. Um, we don't seem to seek to replicate their work. And so as a result, the issues that we work on um, of the day tend to move around. And a really good example of that is um, counterterrorism is not something that we tend to get involved in because the coordination and cooperation between state and territory, between defence and um, civil and police agencies is really quite evolved. And therefore, there's very little gap in civil military police coordination on CT. And as a result, ACMC doesn't play in that space. Um, as I mentioned, we've now got an increasing um, eye towards ADF domestic operations. Uh, but also, interestingly, as defence shifts its preparedness thinking from you know, HADR responses in the region to the more high-end war fighting. Um, so too are we sort of shifting our thinking about how we support preparedness in that different kind of mental space. So I'll talk to you a little bit about the kind of pillars of ACMC's work. Can't take, can't miss the opportunity to explain to you what it is we do and, and, and uh, promote our work. So we, we undertake a range of different activities. Um, the first one I'll talk to you about is knowledge development. Um, so we really try and foster new thinking in civil military cooperation. We produce a range of in-house publications um, on topics of interest to, our part, to us and our partners, but we also um, commission external research um, and publications. An example of that um, is that we are the main funder of something that's called AP4D, which some of you may have come across, which is an organisation that does research on issues of the day, bringing together defence, diplomacy and development experts to try and generate uh, policy options to really prickly challenges. The next pillar of our work that I'll talk about is capacity building. And again, we do this both domestically and internationally. So domestically, we present into defence training courses. Um, so the Australian Defence Co College, uh, but also into other agencies' defence courses and also the non-government sector. Uh, we also develop our own training courses, including some online training courses. But we also think about how we can build capacity overseas. So, for example, uh, we're looking to run uh, a training course with Timor-Leste in June, which is working with Defence and DFAT um, to support Timor-Leste's uh, Timor National Disaster Management Organisation. Um, they're playing a really important regional role this year in, in pulling together the RCG, which I'll talk to you about a bit further on. And so we're working to try and help them to build their capacity to do civil military co coordination. Um, the National Disaster Management Organisations overseas tend to be a natural fit for us because they tend to be, by the definition, civil organisations that have to wrangle a lot of different military assets. The next pillar of what I'll talk to you about is preparedness. And so our work there is really about supporting processes and preparedness activities for both domestic and international crisis response. So in terms of helping defence, 
we both help civilian agencies to gain access to defence activities and to understand the uh, preparedness life cycle so that um, non-defence agencies can understand what that is and, and how the language works, but also def helping defence to try and understand how civilian agencies can best be used, understanding what sort of scenarios and what sort of exercises and what sort of activities might suit civil agency involvement. Um, and so this year, in various different ways, we'll be supporting exercises, Talisman Sabre, Pacific Century, Crocodile Response, uh, Longreach, and several others. Uh, we also work to support civil agencies with their own preparedness exercises and seeing how we can help them to incorporate defence into their preparedness. Now, capturing and communicating lessons is absolutely essential to improving Australia's responses to both domestic and international crises. I'm going to quote Otto von Bismarck. Any fool can learn from their own mistakes, but a wise person learns from the mistakes of others. Now, ACMC has developed a national lessons management framework for the Australian government, which was prepared in, in consultation with both states and federal agencies. And we've also developed, we're developing a range of tools in support of that framework around training um, that, they can, that, people, that agencies can use to build their own lessons capacity. Um, we also have the capacity to conduct whole of government lessons and historically over a number of different years we actually were commissioned by government to conduct lessons across the, that cut across different agencies. We primarily focus on the interagency lessons that come out of that rather than necessarily assessing individual agencies, uh, you know, how, that, how they executed their own mission. Um, and we're also planning to host a civil military forum uh, in late June, which will seek to identify lessons and best practice from civil military deployments uh, in, the last, in the last year or so, both domestically and internationally. And the last kind of pillar of our work is building and supporting networks. So we, again, we do this domestically and internationally. Domestically, we um, have organised a number of different communities of practice and we support a range of working groups across different agencies to try and build those connective tissue between them. But internationally, um, very specifically, the, the example is the Regional Consultative Group on Humanitarian Civil Military Coordination for Asia Pacific. It's a very long title, but everyone just knows it as the RCG. Um, it's the uh, premier forum for governments, intergovernmental organisations and um, NGOs to come together every year to talk about um, civil military coordination in disaster response in our region. But our region is the only region that actually has a, a, sub -re a regional one of these organisations and it's incredibly active. Uh, Timor-Leste is chairing it this year. Um, countries from across the region come together to think about contemporary challenges in the civil military uh, coordination space and they think about issues like gender, peace and security or climate change and how those are affecting civil military coordination in the region. ACMC is uh, part of the secretariat for that organisation along with UN OCHA and our US counterpart, the uh, Centre for Excellence in Disaster Management, which is based out of um, Hawaii. And whilst not a pillar of our work, it's absolutely a cross-cutting issue for us. ACMC is an implementing partner of the Australian Government's National Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security. I'm conscious that Defence uses the term gender, peace and security. Um, the, the National Action Plan uses the term women, peace and security because it's following um, the UN Security Council resolutions. And under the, the, what's known as the NAP, ACMC has two main roles. We have a very specific role about how to engage civil society in the government's women, peace and security agenda. So we have a role in, in, in actively engaging the civil society to give them a, a forum and an avenue to talk to government about women, peace and security issues. But we also try and embed women, peace and security in all act activities that ACMC does. And this, this work is incredibly vital because typically in a humanitarian crisis, around 75% of those people in need of assistance are women and girls. Women are disproportionately affected by disaster 
natural disasters and conflict. So for example, in an example of flooding and, and tsunamis, women are less likely to be able to swim. They are more likely to try and save others and less likely to prioritize themselves. In conflict, sexual violence against women and girls is um, used as a way to undermine and directly disrupt targeted communities. Um, when communities are displaced, women and girls are at a much higher risk of uh, trafficking and slavery. And women tend to be much more affected by health issues during um, crisis, particularly around childbirth. So ACMC works to um, ensure that gender, peace and security considerations are factored into all of our work across, across research, across preparedness, across lessons and across networks. And so now I'd like to talk to you a little bit about um, Same Space Different Mandates. So this is a publication that ACMC released last month. It was launched in Canberra by JCG General Fruin. It's actually an update of an earlier document. It's our flagship document and it really uh, is a guide for responders on who will be on the ground when you get there and what are their different mandates, what are the different language they use, what are their different objectives um, to really give responders, um, potential responders a chance to understand the landscape before they arrive. We sought to update this publication because the landscape in, in, in crisis response has shifted dramatically in the last 10 to 15 years. You know, we've seen climate change, we've seen urbanisation, we've seen technological developments, globalisation and now it's geostrategic tensions. And all of those change the way civil military coordination happens uh, in a crisis. Um, and of course, through that time, the number and type of uh, responders in the crisis is also increasing. Each actor in a crisis has its own history and legal frameworks, its own principles and priorities, its own terminology and ways of working, and its own experience and expertise. And so every different actor is going to approach the situation differently. Um, there's often a, a persistent view when we arrive at a crisis that we, civilians, military police, are all there for the same reason, and that we're all there to do the same job. But it's actually fundamentally not correct. We're actually coming with completely different perspectives and often trying to do reasonably different things. So military actors in a crisis response can range from host uh, country armed forces, so in a domestic response in Australia, obviously that's the Australian Defence Force. They could be non-state armed groups, as we see perhaps in Ukraine or Syria currently operating, or they can be foreign militaries offering support in a crisis. So again, that might be the Australian Defence Force when operating outside Australia in, in, a, in a natural disaster or a stabilisation activity. But civilian actors are even more diverse. So they can range from government to non-government or even intergovernment. And by intergovernment, I mean UN or ASEAN or other regional organisations. They can be professional, they get, they get a salary, or they can be volunteer-based and maybe they just turned up yesterday. They can be principles-based. Now I'll talk a little bit about the humanitarian principles going forward. But they could also be faith-based. They could also be profit-driven. Um, and they can also be commercial. Increasingly, we're seeing commercial actors involved in crisis response. They can be local, they can be regional, they can be international or sometimes a blend of all three, even within the one organisation. Um, and how civil military coordination is conducted will also differ dramatically according to the context. So in a disaster response, coordination can be close. You can see civil and military agencies and actors working side by side, sharing information, uh, coordinating their activities step by step. In a conflict scenario or a complex emergency, you will see um, much less close coordination, you'll see everybody at arm's length, and often that's for everybody's safety and security. So I thought I might talk a little bit about the core humanitarian principles. Non, so humanitarian actors, so here I'm talking about non-government actors um, involved in a crisis response will generally seek to uphold the, what's known as the core humanitarian principles. And adherence to these principles really distinguishes humanitarian action from activities of 
and objectives of political, military and other actors. And we, as when we are operating in international context, need to understand that we as the Australian government are a political, and a, a political actor with our own objectives and our own interests. So compliance with the humanitarian principles is incredibly important for, for these non-government organisations because it really allows them to um, uphold their credibility with the affected populations and also to gain access. And so they will, they will often hold to these principles incredibly tightly. And the operational consequences of losing trust is, is qu can be quite significant. It can mean that uh, people don't get the support, but it also can uh, endanger um, the representatives of those organisations. Now, the humanitarian community, again, is, is, they are quite distinct. They don't take direction from government or militaries. They will, they will hold to that fiercely. They don't gather intelligence and they don't engage in hearts and mind activities. So again, it just helps you to think about how different it is that, you know, from what the approach they are coming with. All humanitarian responders will engage with the first one. In fact, almost all humanitarian responders in any crisis, including the Australian government, will be upholding the, the principle of humanity. Many will also seek to uphold the principle of impartiality. Some humanitarian actors don't necessarily hold to the principle of neutrality, either because they don't see, see it as um, working with their own advocacy work or because in some cases they actually prefer the concept of solidarity. So, for example, in Ukraine at the moment, you see some humanitarian actors that are prioritising the principle of solidarity with the people of the Ukraine um, in the face of Russian aggression over the principle of neutrality. Which, but that will, of course, affect how they can deliver support behind Russian lines or in Russian-held territory or even potentially to Russian-speaking populations. And so they will have to understand that taking that principle of solidarity will impact on their access. So again, while the ADF, while the Australian Defence Force, em embraces that principle of, of, huma of humanity, uh, if you wear a flag on your arm, by definition, we are not neutral, we are not impartial and we're not independent. And so there are a lot of uh, international norms and guidelines that really um, set out how uh, defence forces will operate in a crisis, the use of the, the, use of the military. And Australia supports what is known both as the Oslo Guidelines and the APC Madrid Guidelines. Um, so these guide the use of foreign military and civilian assets in disaster relief. One is setting at the global level and one set at the Asia Pacific level. Both specify that the use of foreign military assets, and that's distinct as in distinct from your own domestic military assets, should only be an option of last resort. Um, and such action should only take place where there is no comparable civilian alternative, so there's no other agency, um, civilian agency that can deliver that support, and where the use of military support can meet a critical humanitarian need. But there's actually a lot of circumstances where those criteria are met. Um, and in particular, um, military responses are incredibly vital at the beginning of a response when um, you are able to marshal your resources so much quicker than others. However, it's really important to understand that uh, military interventions need to be time limited um, to avoid over-dependence by those communities on military responses at the expense of civil organisations or even worse, at the, at the expense of commercial organisations that are trying to get back on their feet. And therefore, in going into a military response, it's important to have an exit strategy right from the beginning. The ADF has a series of unique capabilities that um, are called upon on a regular basis. And so it's not surprising that you know, the ADF has, has over the years um, been called to respond domestically and internationally on many occasions. Um, but I thought I might talk about a couple of experiences from uh, a couple of examples from my own experiences of where the ADF had capabilities, but we had to think really carefully about how and when we deployed them. 
Um, an example is the non-enemy um, combatant evacuation, or NEO, from Lebanon back in 2006. Um, I was based in, in Cyprus, and for those of you who weren't familiar with um, that operation, we were moving um, Australians from Lebanon um, to Cyprus and other places, Turkey, and then on to Australia. So Cyprus was effectively a bit of a staging point. Um, and in that particular response, we used defence workforce and we used defence logistics to move Australians from Cyprus to Australia, sometimes on uh, military aircraft, but actually more often on chartered civilian aircraft. And what was interesting about that for me as a young impressionable diplomat was the incredibly positive response that the ADF had um, among the Australians who were affected by this crisis, who were moving out. Um, you know, the obvious uh, ADF turning up in uniform was received so incredibly positively and it really did change the tenor of our response uh, in how the Australians behaved. Um, and uh, the sorts of requests they might make of us. Um, what was interesting about that though was also, um, you know, we were moving Australians uh, into temporary accommodation in Cyprus before we were able to evacuate them again out back to Australia. And the commercial operators that we were using didn't want ADF there in uniform because these were hotels, they were resorts. They were running hotels and resorts for all the rest of the people that were there. Having people in uniform made this feel like a crisis for those organisations. And so they were really against ADF being there in uniform. It was a real tension. Originally, we started with trying not to have ADF in uniform. That only lasted about two days before um, that didn't work. It was really interesting where we have to think about, you know, the affected population responded really positively, but the commercial operators who we were relying on to be able to get access to their hotels and resorts really didn't want that there. So it was just a really interesting example of where we had to think about how we use the capability. Um, another example was planning for Ebola. You know, there was a, a significant Ebola outbreak in, in West Africa a few years ago. And during that time, um, you know, we did a lot of thinking around uh, what would happen if there was an Ebola outbreak in the Pacific. Um, here is the kind of example where the ADF are able to contribute significant health capabilities and, again, really important logistics. But because of the way Ebola had to be handled and the... Uh, the limited nature of ADF's health capabilities and logistics meant we would really only ever been able to evacuate a very small number, or medevac, a very small number of affected people. And so there was a lot of thought around, well, okay, was an ADF evacuation response really going to be the right thing? Was it about potentially putting in um, the capability to deliver medical response in country rather than trying to bring people out? So again, you know, just because ADF had a capability, we had to think really carefully about what options might have been used. Unfortunately, we didn't end up with any Ebola in the Pacific. And the third example I wanted to use was um, Cyclone Pan in, in Vanuatu, which again happened a few years ago, but we've seen this example replicated over so many years in, in the Pacific. ADF has such incredible um, engineering capability, which can really allow communities to get back on their feet. So, you know, access to clean water, clearing roads to allow them to get back to markets, re-establishing hospitals and other incredible vital services. But the challenge is often, um, you know, the lack of infrastructure in the Pacific means it's incredibly difficult to disembark these capabilities. And so we might want to send a ship with engineering capabilities to a particular island, but when they get there, there's no way to actually disembark the capability. So having to think really carefully about what capabilities we're able to use in any different scenario. Which brings me to the principle of do no harm, which is kind of the unofficial fifth humanitarian principle. Um, and it's really incumbent on all humanitarian responders from all walks of life, from every different kind of organisation to prevent or mitigate harm um, or any adverse effects of their interventions um, that could increase people's vulnerability either to physical or psychosocial harm risks. And so basically the bottom line is if the potential risks of an activity outweigh the potential benefits, then it's incumbent on, on all humanitarian responders to rethink the design of that response. So I thought it would just be interesting to think through what are the um, risks in, in this particular instance of 
um, ineffective civil military police coordination. So in a disaster response, if coordination is poor, then responding militaries could deploy to communities that are not the ones most in risk. They could turn up to a community and find that the, the needs of that community are already being met. They might miss incredibly vulnerable communities or they might even um, inadvertently uh, support discrimination, discrimination or marginalisation of particular groups. If consultation hasn't taken place in advance, um, it's very easy for support to be inappropriate. So an example of this is food. Different communities are familiar with different foods. If you take a particular food to a particular community, if they don't have the knowledge on how to prepare that food, if they don't have the tools, if that community is not set up to do group food cooking as opposed to individual cooking or as opposed to family cooking, that can make it incredibly stressful for them in a difficult situation. But then there's also examples that are even sort of further out than that. So water purification tablets um, are often something that are, 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 have been used in the past uh, in a response to allow the communities to access clean water. Now, if the communities don't, don't understand or can't access information to be able to understand how to use water purification tablets, they can use them inappropriately and they can be mistakenly thinking that the water is clean. And in fact, in some exa extreme examples, we've actually seen where people consumed uh, water purification tablets thinking that that's how they actually were maintaining their own health. So this is why coordination and consultation is incredibly important um, to make sure the interventions we undertake that you know, are in absolutely the best of intentions don't inadvertently cause harm. Uh, in a complex emergency, or um, military responders who are not aware of civilian actors could actually inadvertently endanger civilian actors. So it's incredibly important to understand who's on the ground. And well-intentioned humanitarian action can actually potentially undermine Australia's national interests as well. And here I want to talk a little bit about the example of humanitarian airdrops. So um, we used humanitarian airdrops in Iraq. Airdrops can seem like a really good way to get humanitarian assistance to hard to reach affected communities. Um, but you have to think really carefully through the, um, the potential uh, impact of, that, of their use. So unintended consequences of humanitarian airdrops could be you are delivering uh, assistance that the community doesn't need. Because by definition they're hard to reach, you don't know what they need. So the humanitarian assistance might be ineffective. Worse you could actually uh, cause injury or death. If you can't communicate with the uh, communities on the ground, then how do they know what the airdrop process is and how can we avoid them being hurt? But what's also interesting is um, you can't guarantee that the humanitarian assistance actually gets to the affected populations. Um, the impact for Australia's national interests of humanitarian, Australia's humanitarian assistance falling into the hands of military, enemy military combatants is quite significant. It can cause, it can really undermine um, public support for that particular operation. So a lot of that was what not to do. So I want to come back to something, you know, what do, should we do? So the first thing I would say is it's really important to try and engage with other Australian government and non-government organisations to understand their roles and, organi uh, and, and their objectives. So you know, where possible, meet organisations. Um, if you think you're likely to deploy, meet those organisations in advance, swap business cards. There's no point swapping business cards when you get there. Do it in advance, form some of those relationships. Um, if you're deploying, uh, take any time you can, even if it's just an hour before you go to try and understand somebody else's perspective on why they're going and what they might be trying to do. Um, now, when you're already there, when you're in the middle of a response, identify who else is there. So civil society will inevitably be there before you arrive and they will be there after you leave. And local knowledge is really key to ensuring that the interventions that you have are appropriate for the context. But also actively acknowledge who else is in the room. In the Venn diagram of what we're all trying to achieve and what skills and exper experience and expertise we bring to the problem, where are the areas for collaboration, 
where are the areas with potential duplication? So actively acknowledge who else is there and what they're trying to achieve. Please support local responders and local civil organisations. Don't replace them, don't ignore them, don't endanger them. Just communicate with them. They'll be, appreci they'll be incredibly appreciative. But also understand if civil society don't want to work with you or want to keep you at arm's length. They might just be trying to uh, maintain the security and safety of their own staff or the affected communities. There was an interesting example during um, the Bosnian conflict back in the 90s where a particular government um, sent a shipment of uh, surplus military uniforms to Bosnia um, to support affected communities during you know, intense cold and you know, th these communities were under siege, etc. And so the representative of the government came and, and dutifully photo ops were had and after they left they burnt that pile of, of uh, uniforms to the ground because a civilian wearing a military uniform in a conflict scenario is going to get them shot. So understand that sometimes people might need to keep military organisations at arm's length. Please consider the needs of women and girls. Are they being identified? Are they being addressed? Are relief efforts actually making them more vulnerable? So for example, if you are responsible for dispersing food, if you have female-headed households, are they able to carry that food? Are we dispersing them in such large quantities that they're not able to move them? If we are dispersing cash, which we often want to do because you're trying to empower communities to buy what they need, you're trying to support uh, the re-establishment of local markets, are we dispersing cash in a way that's actually gonna make female-headed households vulnerable to crime and worse? There's, you know, are we thinking about lighting around sanitation facilities? Are we thinking about ways in which our um, interventions can actually you know, support women to be more comfortable and safe in a crisis rather than less? And finally, afterwards, when you're considering your lessons, as I know the ADF does well, think about um, where the gaps were beyond your own mandate. What were the lessons that actually stretched across different organisations? How can you share them? How can you identify them? Um, what coordination could have been improved? Um, what structures or tools helped or what might have helped? And if, you can, if you'd like, please call on ACMC. We're here to help. Thank you very much. So I'm sure you'll appreciate the great insight we've got from uh, Director Rosenblum about how ACMC understands the environment. And importantly, what I took away from that was a couple of extra things about you know, our presence, our posture, our profile. It's not just about the what we do and the system out there. It's a lot more complex than blue and red. There's a whole bunch of other colours out there and just our presence in it will change the system as we interact with it. Um, and also note that as a good presenter, you took the opportunity to spruik a couple of your books that are out. Seriously, I do recommend that you jump on the ACMC website and you do access them. Um, they are very good reads. You've got the opportunity now for those of you online to um, dial in your questions to the co phone. The number will be coming up on your screen. And in a moment, we'll pass around the microphone in the room here for the people who have questions in, in here with me. And I'll take the opportunity to jump in with a question first, is um, from having read the same space, different mandates, Thank as you. of course I'm prepared to do, we've outlined that there's a couple of broad categories of actors in there. There's the humanitarian actors, there's gonna be military actors, and there's gonna be police actors. And you've, you've just said in a crisis situation, such as a humanitarian assistance, it seems to be quite easy for everybody to align and be coordinated with a, a coherent response to the situation. Um, can you draw a bit more of a, an example for us from your own experience or an imagined example about where those um, three things could potentially, um, in their own lines, one will be looking for preserving life, one will be looking at preserving the state, 
and the other one will be looking at preserving the peace. In your own um, experience, have you seen a problem where in a more contentious environment they've been not coordinating but maybe in competition or maybe even indeed in conflict with each other? You're right. I mean, in natural disasters, they should be able to coordinate effectively. So in an international response, so not necessarily talking about a response in Australia, but overseas, um, in, a, in a major crisis that involves foreign response responders, including the ADF or the Australian government, um, there will be most likely what's known as the cluster system in place. So the UN has this established cluster system. So you have water and sanitation cluster, you have the food cluster, you have the shelter cluster. And this allows different organisations, both civil, military, police, to know where they need to plug into. Um, and they're able to identify what the needs are, where they can build their skills and, and, and expertise. And um, there will be a dedicated cluster leads, often um, UN, but it may also be domestic. Um, so different domestic agencies, uh, for example, in the example of the Philippines, which is actually quite a, an evolved disaster management um, system, having been one, you know, being one of the most disaster-prone countries on the in the world, um, they actually have different uh, government agencies um, that are dedicated for each of the cluster systems. So it's a very evolved system. Whereas in a conflict or a, 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 a complex emergency, simply getting together in the same room can be a real challenge. So um, civil, civil actors or you know, particularly non-government actors won't want to come to a military base. For them, that will undermine their, their sense of independence and their neutrality. Um, you won't necessarily want to go to where they are. That will potentially be a security risk for you. So how do you um, identify a common meeting place? How do you do that regularly? And you know, with today's modern communications, perhaps we can now do that electronically. Perhaps that makes it a bit easier. But that also strays into the question around privacy. So for example, in a disaster response, sharing information about different affected communities might be relatively uh, unsensitive. You might be able to say, you know, the community over there is in need of water, the community over there is in need of food. In a complex emergency or a crisis, sharing information about affected communities has a significant uh, potential to undermine the security of those communities. And so it can be incredibly hard, particularly for humanitarian actors, to um, feel capable of sharing information, particularly when they know that Australian government and, and the military will have intelligence gathering activities um, underway um, and that you know anything that they provide will potentially fall, uh, feed into those processes. So I think that's just an example of how those two different com um, situations really come into tension. Yeah, great. And that, that's a great response. And you know, my key thing that I'm taking away over there is that every situation is gonna be complex and there is no template. Absolutely. Although you know the uh, the UN has done its best to create you know a lot of different systems and structures that apply to a lot of different communities, and I guess the advantage of reading same space different mandate is it goes into a lot of the detail about what you might expect to see. Um, I think a complex emergency or conflict is going to be different, but if you're going into a natural disaster response, um, a lot of the structures and systems that are in place should feel familiar, and you should be able to readily plug into what's what's happened before. Thanks. Okay, we've got a question from online before we go to the room. Uh, so this one's from Commander Ken, uh, sorry, Fen Kemp from Information Effects Planner. He's working at DFAT uh, and his question is, is during every humanitarian assistance disaster relief activity, um, identifying and countering false narratives and correcting misinformation in real time is critical to all stakeholders on all sides. Uh, we've seen this play out across the Pacific, um, particularly during COVID, which has arguably led to some um, needless harm and other things that have happened. So what work can be done by ACMC, potentially in collaboration with NGOs, with the government, with um, the ADF, 
and how can we cooperate more in this space? Mm, it's a really interesting question and it's certainly not exclusive to international operations. We saw ourselves, of course, during um, the pandemic in Australia, um, the, the diverse narratives that um, were uh, you know, sort of running rampant there for a while around the country. Um, and I don't think that anyone has a good handle on this. The Australian government is really um, looking for ways currently to, to challenge narratives. But um, in, a, in a small Pacific Island country um, where you know, information can perhaps even move even faster among affected communities and it can really affect our ability to, to uh, have an impact on the ground, it's even more interesting. Um, I definitely think there's a role for ACMC. Um, you know, one of the things we do is commission research. And so I think that's probably an interesting area for us to think about whether or not we could commission some research in the in um, the information space, um, but also just um, you know also thinking about through the lessons learned processes. Um, you know, I think all agencies across government in Australia currently are doing great lessons processes, where the gap is is looking at lessons between agencies, um, and that's something that ACMC I think is really trying to bring back into focus is what can we think about what the lessons between because no particular Australian agency is going to be able to solve the challenge of this information on their own and it's really only going to be by combining our efforts um, that we're going to identify what the lessons might have been out of those situations. Nice, thank you. Um, okay, Commander Kemp, I hope that answers your question. Um, we got any for the room for now? Yep. Hi Nicole, um, Richard Johnston. Um, just got a question. You spoke um, briefly about the RCG and the level of um, activity and how engaged it is because of the fact that it's intergovernmental and non-government as well as um, uh, involving those different actors. I'm curious, is there a particular reason that you can identify that that particular um, architecture is so much more active than perhaps some other regions? Um, so uh, I think the Asia-Pacific region is affected significantly by disaster responses. Now, it's not to say that other other regions aren't affected, but I think um, you know so many of the earthquakes and cyclones and tsunamis in the last perhaps two decades have been concentrated in the um, the Asia-Pacific region. So you won't be surprised perhaps to hear that Nepal actually chaired the RCG for a number of years. Um, you know they you know having on the back of their uh, incredible responses around the Nepal earthquakes. Um, I also think. Um, there is a very uh, entrenched role for militaries in the Asia-Pacific. I think um, the uh, responses are relatively um, progressive in terms of understanding what the military role can be and how it can be used and how it doesn't need to be used. Um, and also perhaps because um, military in our region are often the best, the, the best equipped to respond, particularly in countries in Southeast Asia, perhaps less in the Pacific where we don't see as many militaries. But uh, in Southeast Asia, um, you know, the militaries are often the ones that are well and truly the best equipped and also they're very much embedded into the um, coordination structures. Um, and uh, I think that's really allowed the region to think more interestingly about this. And what we see about the RCG is humanitarian, civil, military actors coming together and actually actively saying, what can we do to coordinate better and how can we align? It's, it's a, a relatively mature conversation that we've, we've really seen evolve, which is great. Uh, hi, Nicola. Major Mike Smith from the CIMIC Group here at TUDIV. Uh, you said uh, earlier in, in your talk that um, ACMC was originally set up for sort of more the focus of offshore operations, but you said that you're starting to switch now a bit more towards uh, onshore domestic. Could you just expand a bit on that, please? Sure. Thanks, Mike. Good to see you again. Thank you for coming for our, to our launch last month. Thank you. Um, yeah, so uh, I guess our increased focus domestically started back in 2019, um, and I think everyone's... Um, 
responses to 2019 will have been fairly similar. So obviously we had bushfires, <coughs> excuse me, leading into um, a pandemic response and of course then leading into floods um, and then now cyclones. I hear today the high-risk weather season is no longer a season. <coughs> um, and so with that role, uh, with, with that change and evolution and the natural increase in the ADF role and domestically, um, CDF asked us to have, you know, to start thinking a little bit more about the, um, the domestic role. In some cases, we actually deployed civil military um, advisors into different command centres to try to actually provide advice to commanders on the ground about how they might work with uh, domestic, particularly uh, state and territory organisations and how they might need to factor their work into that. And I think we're evolving that over time as 2DIV expands uh, its own thinking, both in the disaster response, but also the domestic security. ACMC is doing what it can to see how we can support that uh, expanded thinking, um, the planning, the preparedness, because uh, ACMC at, at the end of the day is really a service organisation. We are here to make sure that we're helping agencies to develop their capabilities. And so ACMC is looking forward to sort of working with 2DIV as that mandate grows. So we've just got one more on the phone here, uh, and this is from uh, Captain Nathaniel, who's based in Randwick. He says, we mentioned the Oslo guidelines about foreign militaries and civil defence, um, particularly how they're to be used as a last resort in humanitarian disaster relief. Noting that it does say foreign militaries, and then how do we reconcile that in a domestic sense when we often see that, is that not an inherent contradiction as we see that as a, often a tool of choice where the ADF is deployed first in that no longer high readiness weather mm -hmm. season, it's just a constant disaster relief. Yeah. So look, the Oslo guidelines and the APC uh, Maduro guidelines aren't meant to take away any state national sovereignty. You know, at the end of the day, governments will decide what they want to do with their own resources. Um, and you will see throughout, um, particularly Southeast Asia, that the, um, the Defence Forces almost are always the first responder in their own domestic crises. Um, we've seen an increasing role for the ADF. I think there's an interesting conversation happening in Australia that will only, I think, increase over the next 12 months around the role of the ADF and what alternative op options there might be for response. But um, none of those guidelines don't in any way take away the sovereign right of a country to decide how to deploy their own response, their own um, resources. Of course, the same criteria really applies around time limited, you know, as it does to foreign militaries. Uh, important that any military response, whether it's domestic or international, um, is time limited so it doesn't in any way replace uh, civil organisations, but even more importantly, the commercial options um, and organisations that are that are present. Once the market starts to reassert itself, it's really important that militaries aren't replacing those options. Thank you very much. And uh, Captain Nathaniel, I hope that answers your question. And that's all the time we've got for questions now. So I'll ask Major General Tomato, um, pass on his thanks for your presentation and I'll thank you first. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hey, Nicola, thank you very much for your uh, presentation. I, I just want to sort of bring that all together and give a context from as Commander Second Division and thank you. Uh, I think it's really important to understand that defence is only part of a whole of government approach and sometimes defence uh, by our profile, it's easy to forget that. So I think it's really important that we view preparedness in an interagency sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's certainly the way uh, we've approached it. And we're really grateful for how ACMC has enabled us to do that over the last couple of years, whether it's been in the development of the lessons, we've been really grateful to have an external 
uh, view of how lessons are prepared to, to support us in that interagency space, but also in the collaboration with the other interagencies to build a really collegiate atmosphere uh, going forward. And, and this, uh, just taken with some of your words about having an exit strategy right at the beginning, uh, that's been a really hard learned lesson for us over the last three years of uh, building uh, products so that we can set the conditions for what success looks like so that we can come off the operation. Uh, and it's much easier to get on an operation than it is to leave an operation. And that's been a hard one experience. But uh, Nicola, thank you very much for your time today. A uh, really good presentation. I commend the book uh, and I look forward to continued collaboration with ACMC in the division. And I just wanted to give you my coin thank and thank much. you very much thank you. Uh, for everything you do for us. Fantastic, my pleasure. Thank you, thank you well very done. much for having me.